you have to be somewhat of a hardy photographer. The beluga got trapped in the shallows and the bears kind of were able to get it added enough to drive it to shore. Two barred owls sitting on the log and one's holding a weasel in its mouth. Bear cubs snorfling the camera. Four bulls running with snow flying everywhere. Frost foxes, red foxes, arctic foxes. Where do you get that? You will not be disappointed. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, Ron Hayes and myself, Mark Raycroft, are joined by our first guest of 2019. Before we launch into that exciting content from the Canadian Rockies, Ron, how's it going in Wyoming? It's going good. We finally have winter. Why We got our first uh, legitimate snowstorm here a couple days ago. It did get pretty cold overnight, so that snow has kind of locked in. It's not melting and blowing away anymore, which is great. We need to get some moisture in the sagebrush so it stays there till spring. But, yeah, we did get our first good storm, and I don't think anybody's complaining about it because it's definitely a need, or we're going to see some serious fires this spring. Need the moisture, right? Absolutely. So do the kids get a snow day? I've been waiting to hear. You were texting me about the storm. Did they get the snow day? No, they hardly ever close the schools here because then they have to make it up at the end of the year. Ooh, so <laughs> that's no good. That's a they bad, might, bad. They might shut down some of the uh, the bus routes, but they okay. They usually don't cancel school, which is yes. unfortunate. That used to be some of the best days ever. Right, because it's when I was surprise a kid, day yeah. off. Surprise day off, and you go grab the sleds and. Or actually, the first thing you do is go shovel all the walks in the neighborhood, make money, and then go sled for a while and then go hit the arcade. But they don't have to do that anymore. They never leave the house to play games. <laughs> so so when you were a kid, did they tack on the day at the end of the year then as well? I know it wasn't that long ago you were in school, but I mean, didn't... Yeah, it's only been a few years, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they didn't. We they didn't, because I hadn't heard of that. It was always a win-win. A snow day meant one less day of school and a surprise day off. Not that the parents yeah. liked to necessarily, at least my parents. I know I loved having the kids around, right, Andrew Martha? It was great when you had your snow days. <laughs> snow forts, snowball fights, you name it. Well, it's been winter here in Ontario. It has been cold. And thankfully, we got about six inches of snow right before the temperature plummeted, thanks to the Arctic air mass that moved down. And it was minus 33 two nights ago, and things are frozen solid. But it warmed up today. This is this fluctuating temperature. I tell you, it was above freezing today, and it's going to drop again in a couple more days. But thankfully, we have a bit of snow, so it's creating a great winter landscape for wildlife photography, and I am ready to get out and do some more of that this coming week. To launch in today's pro tip section... Mine is something I came up with while I was editing this week, and I have done this for years. And I thought while I was sitting there, is this a pro tip? Couldn't it qualify as a pro tip? Thinking, well, hell yeah, I do it all the time. It makes sense. It's about altering perception. Now, think about this. Some of you may debate this, but it works for me. When I have an image, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, where we try with animals, with wild animals, to be at or below their eye level for the effect of the animal, gives the power to the animal, um, it also can, for animals like moose or bears, it can make them look bigger. 
you know, if I'm down low, and again, it has to be at the right scenario. You have to be safe about it at a, at a, at a respectable distance with a telephoto lens, never risking the animal or the photographer. Let me put that on the table right away. But if it's a situation where there's a, an embankment, let's say, that's 10 yards up from the road and the bear's walking along the embankment, instead of beside the road, you have that benefit of shooting up at a degree, and then that bear will look... 500 pounds instead of 250 pounds. It just lends itself to that perspective when you shoot from a different, from a lower angle. But due to topography or our positioning, we may not always have that advantage to be able to be at or below the animal's eye level. So there are times when I'm editing in post-production and if there's space above the animal in the image, I cut that off. I crop that top couple of inches off the image and then hit full frame and it pulls it up and the animal appears now, I know as far as physics go, it may not be any higher, but it appears higher on the image and it gives that benefit of having a better angle of the eye. So to finish today's pro tip, it's altering perception. You can do it in post. You can play with the image, crop some of that top off to lift the animal in the perspective so that it looks like you're closer to or even below the eye level. It's just a bit of a tweak that can be done that I have practiced over the years that it's just uh, something to be aware of when you're working on your images after the fact. Ron, what's your pro tip for today? All right. My pro tip for today is to experiment. And with that, uh, last week we talked about some of uh, the 15 beginners tips. And one of the things that I talked about was light. And so experiment with the exposure triangle that I talked about last week was, you know, the relationship between ISO, shutter speed, and your aperture. That relationship you can change how your camera interprets light. You know, if you have real dramatic lighting and you want to darken the image, experiment with how to get that rim light, how to darken the image and make it more dramatic. And I can, you know, just a few examples. If you guys have a chance to go to uh, Harlan Cooper on Instagram, look up Harlan Cooper or Caleb White and Harlan's got an image of an elk in uh, Colorado Rockies that he just had the perfect light scenario. And it looks like this elk is just emerging from a shadow with just this little bitty beam of light that's just going to accentuate just the, the features on the front of the elk. And it, it's an incredible image. It was an incredible bull, but it's an incredible image. And what he did with the light in that shot, I think you'll you'll see what I mean. And then the other one... Caleb White, who is actually on the podcast for, they were talking about Fujifilm, and but they also touched on the fact that Caleb had some images that he had taken in New Zealand. And one of the images that he's put up recently uh, was of a, a red deer stag, just an, a monstrous, really impressive stag. But the light that Caleb was able to get on that animal and that he was able to interpret and see the opportunity that he had in front of him if you don't go out and experiment with some things and kind of play with light, play with that exposure triangle, if you think about it, to change your exposure, each click either on any of those three components, ISO, shutter speed, or aperture. So if you're in manual mode, hit your ISO button, drop it three clicks, you just dropped one stop of light. Now you can do the same thing with your shutter speed. Increase it take it up, you shutter speed up three clicks and you've decreased. You've taken one stop of light away. You have to get to the point where you are able to interpret that light and then make the adjustments in camera 
and and do it almost extinctually. So if you don't get out and experiment, you don't get out and practice, those things aren't going to, they're not going to happen in the field for you. And you won't be able to take advantage of those opportunities. You know, kind of goes right along with practicing, goes right along with educating yourself. Get out and experiment with your camera, experiment with how you interpret light, how your, in, your camera is going to interpret the same light. And I just probably lost half of you. <laughs> uh, with that explanation. <laughs> no, you know, but, I agree. And I want to get on board and give props to both those photographers just with their work as a whole. They're both very talented. Yeah. And I enjoy seeing their, their images on Instagram. And I do also clearly, I had no idea that you were going to bring this up as a pro tip today, but I remember those images and Caleb just put that one up today and I stopped. It was one of those things I talk about on Instagram. We just spin through these images and, you know, I'm trying to look at fewer images on Instagram and stop at the ones that warrant it. And that was one that I just, I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? It was just spectacular. Yeah. And Harlan definitely has some as well that are worth looking at and just pondering over some great photography from both those photographers. Great tip. Let's jump into the question of the week. So I received it uh, on social media. It says, Mark, do you ever use trail cameras to help find animals and figure out where to photograph them? And if so, what models would you recommend? Thanks, Bill. Well, I do use trail cameras, but it's not, they're not, not a device that I use frequently for my professional photography. But I do use them, and I do use them on occasion for my professional photography for finding out not where animals are. It's more finding out timing to be there in situations where I need to set up a, a blind. So uh, wild turkeys in the springtime. Wild turkeys, for those that know those birds, they typically have a routine they follow every day. So it's a matter of setting up cameras in areas of their favorite forage near a roost, but not near enough that's disturbing them, of course, but near a roost. And the camera can reveal what time of day they go by. So if they feed in that field at 7.30 in the morning, I know I need to have my blind set up at 40 yards away along the tree line and be in there an hour before. So trail cameras can help, help dial that in. Same with fox dens, or let's say on, on someone's property, you find a den, you don't know what it is, you set a trail camera up downwind, 20, 30 yards away, 20 yards probably be better, and you can see what's in that den. Now, tips on trail cameras. I have been using them for decades, back when they used to have film and D-cell batteries and crazy expensive getting the film developed just to see all these beautiful raccoons and squirrels and blue jays. Nowadays, digital is way better than that because you don't aren't subject to any expense. Just like with cameras, you put your SD card in and you're off to the races. The other benefit of modern trail cameras are they run off AA batteries that if you buy the lithium ones can run four to six months. Not so long in really frigid winter temperatures, but they can run a significant portion of the year, which means minimal disturbance when you just want to let something run. The trick nowadays, too, for sensitive animals is, and you might as well, it costs, it costs more, but you will get better results, guaranteed. Instead of having incandescent flash cameras to go for the infrared, but not just the infrared, the black infrared or no glow, they're often called. What that means is there's no flash at night for animals that will bother them. So even if you're, for instance, setting up on at a respectful distance from a fox den with a camera, you know, you're obviously only interested in that scenario for daytime pictures. 
But the camera, some of them you can set for just daytime. But if it's running 24 hours, there's no point in flashing the foxes and disturbing them and having them leave potentially. Whereas this infrared nighttime vision will make that so the animals aren't disturbed, especially with the black or dark plastic that goes in front of the LEDs. And that brings it so that they tolerate it. And you can tell because in these cameras, animals are hardly ever looking at the camera. They don't know they're having the photo taken or video. Another thing about these modern cameras is you can set it on a hybrid mode, which is what I prefer to do, where you can tell it to take or program it with a simple-to-use menu for some of them. Not all of them have simple menus, but some of them do. And you can tell it to take three pictures, two seconds apart, or three in a burst, and then do a video segment. You know, so I'll set it up to do a 15 second video segment. Then I'll tell it to pause for 30 seconds without doing it again. Another thing I, I love having trail cameras is to take them on trips where I'm going to be somewhere for 10 days in a different area. And I don't necessarily use it in that situation for professional photography, but it is so cool to be on the tundra or to be somewhere in the, in, in like Newfoundland in the forest where there's obvious game trails and to set one of these cameras up for a week or 10 days just to see what comes by. The trick there is to make sure you have fitted metal housing and a lock on it because you will have animals like bears who are scent driven who will find it and want to play with it. If it's not securely fastened, then it will, they'll either break your camera or have the trail camera disappear. Two brands that I use nowadays are Reconyx and Bushnell. Those are my two go-to cameras at this point in time for basic research when I need it in these wildlife situations where there are skittish animals or I need to figure out the timing of their daily routines. Another cool thing about trail cameras that I just want to touch on before finishing is that if you have your own property, you never know what's out there as far as curious wildlife. I mean, you see so many things. I have cameras set up in our hardwood bush. There was one time I got a picture at night of two barred owls sitting on a log. I mean, the camera wasn't positioned by this log expecting this. It was on a on a path through the forest. I didn't even think of this dead log there. Two barred owls sitting on the log and one's holding a weasel in its mouth in the middle of the night. I mean, how cool is that image? One of the best ever that I've collected all these years. Another one, and this this is way better than that. I had no idea this was going on. Within 200 yards of our house, uh, we have a lot of forests around, and I had never seen these animals in the daytime. I hadn't seen them at all. I'd left a camera in the bush locked to a tree for six months. It'd run through the winter, run through spring. I was busy. The leaves flushed out in the forest. I wasn't expecting anything on it. So I knew there's a battery life running six months. I'll just leave it up and see what animals go by, see what deer go by, what foxes. We have fishers, you know, coyotes, raccoons. What's going to walk by? What happened? I'd had it set up that winter on a white oak tree, and it was a an amazing year for acorns. They just carpeted the ground. Winter came, the acorns were covered with lots of snow and ice. They were inaccessible. Come spring, the animals came back. So I'd had it there late fall for the draw of the acorns to see what animals were coming. In the spring, they all returned. The deer returned, the turkeys returned, and get this, a beautiful, huge black bear saw returned with two cubs of the year for a month. They played in front of this camera on this tree. I had set it on hybrid mode, so I had these photos, and then I had these 15-second video clips of bear cubs snorfling the camera routinely, and then going up to the tree, one pulling the other's butt, pulling it down the tree, then one would go up, and there was this little branch on the tree about a foot long, and they'd go out like they're Olympic gymnasts and start swinging on this branch. We had no idea this was happening 200 yards from our house in the bush for a month. 
So I will put up a couple of those, or Missy will, on our show notes because the videos are hilarious and it all came through a trail camera. So there are applications for trail cameras uh, that are very useful in wildlife photography, but also they're just a cool device that is relatively inexpensive nowadays that's worth having on your property or your favorite place that you go and photograph if you have the opportunity to set one up. And I would, you know, I would add one thing to that for, for long-term projects, one of the things that a lot of people will use is uh, like a camera trap. So you've got a laser cast a cast a beam, and when that beam is cut, then your camera is going to take an image because there's something something crossing, something moving in front of it. Now, like one of the biggest long-term projects in the state of Wyoming has been the we have the longest migration path in in the states. Uh, with our mule deer herd that goes from the desert back up to the mountain every year. So one of the things that they use trail cameras for is, yeah, they need higher quality images, but they'll set a trail camera to figure out what those migration routes are, confirm what they suspect the migration paths are, and then they know where to set those camera traps and what time of year. Now, this project went on for several years, but they made good use of trail cameras, a, a cheaper, more weatherproof option and less labor intensive to go out and figure out where they need to set their camera traps, which are, you know, very expensive and very labor intensive to get those things set up. So that's, you know, that's another application depending on the project that you're looking for. But I think what Mark covered with just, you know, just finding out what's, what's there, what are we missing when we're not there? Yeah. I think that's probably the most frequent application. And I, I like the spy point cameras are just a little 10 megapixel uh, but they're really compact and the reason that i like those is because you can buy a, a three pack of these spy point cameras for almost the same price it costs for one of a competitors and you find uh, that I you're getting a, the results i haven't i haven't tried you know it's point. a it's a 10 megapixel camera it's it's not you know it's not ever an image that i'm going to sell but oh, no, for, no. for you're the not task stuff. that i need they're very compact so yeah, taking them and uh, and being able to distribute them widely. You buy a three-pack of them, you could have several locations covered or have a full location covered right. and be able to know exactly where where the movement's taking place like you were talking about before. Right. You know, trying to determine where to set a blind. You know, one of the things that we use them for, bobcats in this part of the state uh, for a couple different reasons, and I think we've touched on this before, but they'll use uh, haystack yards, alfalfa stack yards on farms and ranches they'll make a little hole in there and it serves two purposes first of all you've got mice and rabbits in that area so they don't have to hunt very far but the the biggest thing is in the winter time you know you you den up in the middle of a haystack you've got about r5000 insulation so you don't ever have to worry about being cold so it's if you find one of these holes we put a trail camera on them to confirm first of all that it's a bobcat and secondly like you said you know just for timing purposes when are they going out to feed when are they coming back are they staying in there all day all that kind of information can be gathered with a trail camera that's date and time stamped so yeah. yeah they are a good tool but you know as far as photography goes the be creative in how you use them i guess would be the main thought there are some now, I mean, they're a little more expensive and they have various types of plans tied to them, but there are the cellular ones now that send the image immediately yeah, to send one's it to cell your phone. phone. Yeah, exactly. So you can be tethered in to see whatever's happening. 
But yeah, for for nature and wildlife photography, I I simply use it for some of those species to help figure out where to place a blind effectively to manage a situation and, and get some images that way. But I I have more fun with them just documenting on trips. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to the Northern Rockies to pop one on a trail and see what happens. Pick it up a week later and just and and there are people that are killing it on YouTube and on on Instagram too with just trail camera feeds. Of yeah. their animal, of the animals they see, the mountain lions, or, or whether it's stills or videos. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, Bill, for the question of the week. We encourage our listeners to send in any questions that you may have, no matter whether you're a beginner or an expert. We will do our best to answer them all. We'll feature one on each podcast as the question of the week. I'd like to welcome our first guest of 2019, a talented photographer who lives in the Alberta foothills of the Canadian Rockies. That lucky guy. I'd like to welcome Joe DeJardin to our podcast today. Thanks for coming on, buddy. I've known you for a few years. I've enjoyed your work. I'm looking forward to hearing some history, and I want to know some camera details from you today because you've made some significant changes in your career time. But let's take us back. Take us back. I want to know, just quickly, I did some reading up on you besides having a, a beer with you in the pub and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. You are from my neighborhood in yeah, a greater kind of way. I didn't know that. Northern Ontario, we call it. Sault Ste. Marie, yes, that's where I'm right. from. Yeah, you betcha. Growing up in Northern Ontario, hunting, fishing, photography, camping, doing it all, right? How long were you there for? Like, When did you move to Alberta? Oh, geez. Uh, I've been to Alberta about 16 years now. So I moved from Sault Ste. Marie to Thunder Bay. So I was in Thunder Bay again for about four years or so. Did the whole outdoor thing out there, photography and camping and fishing and stuff. And then uh, I headed west. Yeah, pretty awesome out here. It's not rubbing it life. in, but, you know. <laughs> Sorry, not which? Rubbing I said, it in not now. rubbing okay. it in, anyway. Yes, yes, you are. Some out here, so. Yes, you are. That's why I spend uh, almost a month a year out there, <laughs> and we've discussed moving out there. And it's an amazing country, and for nature or wildlife photography, or any just anybody interested in the greater outdoors, oh, you it's, bet. it's so enticing. There's such a variety of, of wildlife of every sort, you know, and the landscapes are breathtaking. And for those people who haven't done it, who haven't flown to Calgary, I don't care where you're listening to us from. If you have the opportunity, it's easy. Trust me. You fly to Calgary, you rent your car, you get the map, you drive one hour, and the Rocky Mountains go from small in a distance to overtaking the landscape, and you're immersed in it. Then take the time, drive three hours further, and just experience the whole Icefields Parkway. It's one of the best drives and most amazing landscapes, diverse landscapes on planet earth and in north america so that's joe's backyard just to, that's rubbing it in yes i would uh, totally agree with you mark um when i first moved out here my brother took me for a ride through the, the rockies and all he kept doing was rolling his eyes telling me to like he couldn't believe the amount of photos i was like taking out the window stop 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 you know i needed this photo stop again take this photo and uh, yeah it was absolutely amazing and i still don't take it for granted i'm out there as much as i can every weekend and that sort of thing so I have so many questions, but let's start with the traditional about, I mean, I want to know what you prefer about the Rockies, but we'll get there because we can't sure, help but sure. just come back naturally to the subject. I want, when did you get into photography? A little bit about your history, you know, what your passions are and, and why you started and, and where your course of, of, I think from what I read on your website, which is a great website, by the way, Thank you. Um, which is just your name.ca, right? Correct. Uh, JoeDeJardin.ca. Um, so I started actually when I was about 16, 17, uh, I seen an ad in the paper for a studio photographer 
And um, I didn't have much studio experience, but I submitted a portfolio of my wildlife nature images and I got the job. So I actually started out as a studio photographer. So I didn't do too much environmental stuff, but it was, uh, you know, uh, weddings, uh, portraits, uh, it was, um, you know, commercial stuff, that sort of thing. So I kind of got my career started in that genre of photography and uh, probably did weddings up to about, oh, for about 20 years or so, including portraits and moving into the environmental portrait side of things and a little bit of commercial work. But I mean, I always did the nature stuff in Ontario, but after moving out here, Man, it slowly dropped. <laughs> Weddings, sports, everything pretty much dropped off. And I, you know, started doing the nature thing full time. So, yeah, I've been at it for a long time. And your first setup for nature photography, like I want to bring this up because I want to get into what you're shooting now mm-hmm. because it's some, it's a brand that we have not covered. And I think our listeners right. will enjoy learning about it. But what did you start with as far as your wildlife photography? I assume it was either Canon or Nikon. It was a Canon. Okay. Uh, Canon AE1, then a Canon A1, and then I moved into the eye control stuff, and then into the digital stuff, and so I've been at Canon true and true till up till about last year. So I've shot Canon for about 30 years, and then that's when I made my transition from Canon to mirrorless micro four thirds. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say I met you last spring. Yeah. You were still shooting the Canon at that time, so it must have been shortly after that that you made the the full switch, I, right? I actually know shooting both oh so you? you may not have seen me with the lumix but it was about 50 50 because it was okay. my first spring with that camera i actually got it that past november right mm-hmm. so you know you're still getting a good feel for it still you know learning things and i wanted to make sure you know i, I did get my images so uh, the lumix and and the canon were side by side and uh, i shot with both so a lot of my uh, spring bear images are shot on the lumix g9 along That's with my nice. canon and, and stuff like that nice I, I want to ask, uh, because I'm just not familiar with this, I've seen Panasonic and the GH4, GH5. Lumix is the same thing, is it not? Correct, yeah. So why do they have, what's with the two names? Why do we have Panasonic, you can go get your Panasonic GH5, or is it actually technically more accurately called a G? Panasonic Lumix, yeah. Yeah. I, oh, so I don't know if it's a subgenre or something. I, I really don't know, Mark, okay. but they are one of the same. Okay, yeah. I thought so. I just I wanted clarity, just to know what I'm talking about. Because Tyler, who accompanied me on uh, a trip to Alaska early last September, yep. yeah, was using a, a GH three or four for vlogging. It was the first hands-on I'd had with the Panasonic Lumix experience, and he loves his. Yeah. And you know, there were some setbacks for the camera body he had. That if I'd known there was um, some kind of promotion going on in Anchorage for the GH five, I think it just come out. And, and also, for those that don't know, there's no tax in Anchorage. So there was that temptation. I would have upgraded potentially and bought that. But I'm looking forward to learning about these cameras today. And so the obvious question that I have, and I know everybody has, is, okay, you've shot Canon for all these years. What was it that enticed you to make this switch a year ago about these, these new cameras, this other brand? Well, uh, there, there's a lot of things, but uh, to start off, uh, Panasonic, so they launched the, the Lumix G9, which essentially is uh, their flagship stills camera. They're known for, like you said, the GH3, GH4, GH5. These are amazing video cameras, right? And they've used them to, you know, record movies and, and shows uh, like, uh, you know, Frontier on Netflix. They're really high quality video cameras that can take stills. But what Lumix did was uh, created the G9 more to take stills with video, okay? 
So this camera is is set up for primarily wildlife and sports photography. So when when they uh, sent out the prototype along with the um, the Leica 200-2.8, the lens that would accompany that, not so much in the kit, but you know as a good match for that camera, they asked me to to go out and try it. So uh, I was pretty honored to have that camera for them to ask me to say, hey Joe, we want you to take this out and try it. Well. Um, I was pretty blown away right from the beginning. Just to give you a, a few little things about the camera, of course, being mirrorless, micro four thirds, you know, having that two time crop. It is a uh, 20 megapixel camera, right? As far as the wildlife and um, like sports side of things go, you know, with the, it's got different types of uh, shutters. So it's got a, a mechanical shutter that can uh, shoot up to 12 frames per second. Okay. It's got an electronic shutter that can actually shoot up to 20 frames per second and continuous and on actually single shot focus okay auto focus single shot it'll shoot up to 60 frames per second Sorry, so basically video so I basically ask. it is a video at that point <laughs> at, at yeah. that point and you know what was funny is when i first started using these uh, frames per second and uh, using obviously it had to be an electronic so it was it was quiet I started, I pressed the shutter, I'm waiting to hear the sound of the shutter. And all of a sudden, I, I look inside and I see my frames, like my going from 1700 down to 1600. I'm going, I, don't, I didn't even know I was taking an image. It was happening so fast, right? So pretty much from then on, I went back to mechanical and shooting 12 frames per second because I like the sound, I like to know. And, and 12 is usually more than enough for, you know, the type of photography uh, we do as as wildlife photographers. Without the mirror, there's not much noise anyway, is there, compared to, compared no. to a 1DX? No, not at all. Not at all. It, it's just the, the sound for me, knowing that the frames are firing and everything else, because when you're on that silent mode, oh yeah, I mean, the only reason, or you only know that you're taking photos by looking inside the camera and seeing the amount of frames that you're losing, like, you know, it's going down. So yes, it was kind of freaky to me, but um, yeah, so incredible frame rate, like frames per second, you know, 225 autofocus points, which is insane. The other nice thing about this is hand holding uh, the system, where combined with, you know, image stabilized lens, you got six and a half stops of IS built into this, three in the body, three, three and a half in the body and three in the lens or, you know, something close, close to that. So it pretty much eliminates the use of a tripod for, for most wildlife situations I've found. But, you know, it's got all kinds of other stuff too that, that are, you know, uh, pretty cool. High res mode. You can shoot any megabyte files for the landscapes and stuff. Uh, 4K, 6K shoot, post focus, focus stack. Um, the other thing about this camera body, and I've actually tested this over the winter, and it's dust and weather sealed. So I've had this camera out in about minus 20, minus 25 uh, degrees Celsius, and it worked flawless. I didn't have any issues with that. Kept the batteries warm, uh, had no problems at all. I might have went to two batteries the whole day, which is pretty good for a, a mirrorless camera because they've been known to have the, the batteries draining on them. Yeah, yeah, you betcha. So I guess the, the biggest thing is weight and size. Now, I shoot also with a, a Canon 500 F4 with a 1.4 teleconverter and a 1DX Mark II. That system right there is pushing 11, 12 pounds. If you eliminate the teleconverter and shoot a 500 mil with a 1DX, you're shooting at, obviously, it's a full frame, so a 500 mil. When you're shooting with the G9, a 228 with a 1.4 teleconverter, I'm getting an effective focal length of 560. Pretty darn close, a little bit more reach, and it's only five and a half pounds. That's including the vertical grip, two batteries, and the teleconverter on that mm -hmm. 200 to 8. 
So have to wait to carry around. <laughs> so what's a teleconverter? What do you what do you mean there? So if it why is there a teleconverter in play? That doesn't affect your focal length of five sixty. That's if you want to go beyond that. Is that correct? No, uh, actually no, because it's a, a two hundred two eight, and yes. with a two times crop, it makes it four hundred. Right. And then when you add the one point four, oh, I see what you did. It makes okay. it five sixty. Yeah, you bet. So did just for clarity, are you still using the Canon as well? For some I haven't scenarios? probably used it in about eight months. Okay. It's just kind of collecting dust there because, you know, just like any new system, you're getting used to it. You're getting a better feel for it. You're, you're learning how the camera reads the light and focuses. And, you know, I'm still fine tuning the, the autofocus settings for tracking and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I haven't really uh, touched my Canon for eight or nine months. Now. I'm very impressed with this camera. So, Or your tripod, huh? Or I'm, Yeah, I got a pretty big tripod and a gimbal and everything else that, that hold that 500 and I haven't touched any of it. So the only, well, I carry a smaller, absolutely. Uh, I carry yeah. a smaller tripod now, smaller carbon fiber with a ball head, or I've got a video head for it too. Cause I'm just like what I've heard with you guys doing. Um, I heard on your previous podcast, starting to take a little more video, starting to learn about video. Uh, I picked up a G85 to do vlogging while I'm shooting with the G9. It's kind of hard to do both with, with the same camera, so I picked up a, a Panasonic, uh, which is pretty awesome for stills too, but it, it's great for video. I mean, even half the weight of a G9, so it's super light and tilts great. It's, it's got everything I need for it, so. Is that but, where there's a cost difference there as well that's significant? As huge. opposed to getting a second G9, the, the G80, sorry, G85? Yeah, yeah G85 is, is a lot less. I would say so probably about the, half. Probably what are the price half. points of those two bodies? Just for oh, the geez. off the top of your head, roughly. Um, yeah, because they've had huge promos, discounts over the Christmas break, uh, savings of six or $700 and stuff. I want to say that G9 camera body is in around the $2,300 range, $2,400. Okay. I'm not sure if that's with the discounts or not. So, um, But it, it's in, in and around there. I, I seen on the Panasonic website earlier, it was like $1,700 US. So, yeah. For lenses then, what, what are the options for a wildlife photographer? Obviously... They have wide angle lenses, but for telephoto right. capability, what is it anything beyond the 200? Is there a zoom that's? Oh, added? absolutely. They got the, they got a, like a 100 to 400. 100, 400, yeah. So that's your 200 to 800. Yeah. And incredibly sharp. Now you don't have the F-stop. Who gets a would. 200 to 800? What are you talking about there? <laughs> it's crazy. Genie absolutely. in a bottle. <laughs> absolutely crazy. Uh, it is a 5.6 to 6.3. So, you know, you're not shooting wide open and everything else. But again, you know, just being aware of your backgrounds and everything else, getting yourself in the position and that sort of thing, you can still get those nice clean backgrounds. Just like using it, even like the, the Canon 100 to 400, which is a 4.5 to 5.6. Uh, the aperture is still up there a little. But uh, yeah, you just, I, I don't know. I'm not too worried about it, to be honest with you. You know, um, when you want to get those those nice soft backgrounds, you can work for it and, and get them. But yeah. Right. You can easily change, well, not some scenarios you can skyline an animal get some more distance for the background gotcha. and, and gotcha. create that softer background with the sh appearance of a, sh a shallower depth of field at five six or six three exactly exactly um and then they have the 200 28 which is a, a you know, obviously a fixed focal length which gives you about a, a 400 mil well it does give you 400 and then uh, they've got other lenses in there like a um i gotta keep uh i keep forgetting my um uh I want to say like a 24 to 70, but it's actually a, a 12 to 35, <laughs> you know, okay. the stuff that's in my bag, right? And, and they got a good variety of uh, zoom lenses in between for sure. Like they, they do have a 100 to 400, which is a 50 to 200, which is a really nice lens too. Yeah, you bet. 
So it certainly encompasses the whole range, the whole focal range for sure for wildlife. How do you find the glass compares to Canon? Yeah, it's tack sharp. It's tack sharp. Yeah. It's absolutely tack sharp. No issues at all. I'll, you know, I know I'm going to be sending you some images and stuff, and and these will obviously be lower res JPEGs. But if you actually go to my Instagram account and stuff, and you, and you see them, it's incredible the detail, especially the sharpness of the eye and the fur and 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 everything else, right? So. Um, yeah, very impressed with it. Yeah, so those will be in our show notes, as will the link to Joe's Instagram account. Yeah, well. you bet. Awesome. Yeah. So let's let's. I mean, is there anything else? I mean, I'm intrigued about these mirrorless cameras because they're they're happening all around us. There's several brands competing. Yeah. And it's an exciting time. I have not made the leap myself, so there are all yep. these different cameras that I'm trying to learn more about. Is there mm -hmm. anything else you want to throw out there about the Lumix system before I start asking you questions about? Other aspects of your photography? Um, I don't want to jump over if, if you're not if there's something we're missing. No, yet. not not at all. I mean, I'm actually a, a Lumix storyteller, so I guess you'd say something like a, a sponsored pro through Lumix right now. Okay, so if you go to LumixStories.ca, you'll see me up there along with the other pros that are a part of the program. I'm available for any questions, maybe uh, helping out, getting some gear into your hands, you know, like that kind of stuff, right? So maybe doing. Uh, we're actually talking about uh, a few talks this year, a couple of workshops that are Panasonic sponsored so we can get more people involved with this sort of stuff. So yeah, if anybody has questions, you know, um, that's, that are listening and that sort of thing, I know I'll be talking to you guys about stuff like that later, but uh, yeah. So um, it's all available for, you know, people to try and uh, get their hands on and that sort of thing too. So, so how does one become a Lumix storyteller? I know like uh, Charles Gladser we had on earlier was a, a Canon Explorer Lite. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, a specific program with, with Canon. You betcha. What, uh, what tied you into Lumix and how did that, how did that come about? Well, after testing the cameras, using the cameras, producing um, quality images, started speaking for them, talking about the cameras and, you know, combining it with wildlife photography and everything, they approached me and asked me if I wanted to come on board. So mm -hmm. it was quite an honor for them to, to actually uh, to do that. So I just jumped at the chance because I believe in the camera, right? If, you know, obviously after a month or so, it just wasn't for me, then, you know, it would have stopped there. But um, so, yeah, it was, it, it took a little while, right? I wasn't really aware of, of that. And uh, all I did was take the camera, use it, do what they asked me to do. And then, you know, we started conversing. And then I did some talks in Vancouver and for PPOC and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then uh, they approached me and, uh, I said yes. So I'm going to be doing a lot more with uh, Panasonic. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Just for those that don't know, what's PPOC? Uh, Professional right. Photographers of Canada. So it's a professional organization. You know, it's it's geared to all genres of photography. I would say more wedding and, and portrait work, right? But they do have a, a nature uh, photography aspect of it, which includes landscapes and macro and, and wildlife and that sort of thing. So I'm an accredited photographer through PPOC with about six different accreditations. And then, uh, and so, th you know, they, they asked me to, to come and talk, talk for them and, and give them uh, a talk on wildlife photography and, and uh, macro. So, yeah. It's pretty cool. So in the field in 2019 or even 2018 or 2017, what are your favorite subjects to go after and find? Are oh, you more bears. of a landscape bears, or bears, is it bears? <laughs> bears, bears, bears. If there's only one subject I could shoot for the rest of my life, it would just be bears. Absolutely. Okay. Right on. And then we'd go like 
any predator kind of thing. I love birds of prey too. We've got such a diversity of owls out here. You know, we got the snowy owls out here right now. We got the great grays. You know, we got the short-eared owls. We got we got all kinds of stuff right in this this little pocket of Alberta here. So um, yeah, I just love love the birds of prey. But bears are at the top of the list. Absolutely. Black bears, grizzly bears, polar bears, all yep. of the above. Yep. <laughs> all equally. I fell in love with the polar bears when I went up to Churchill a few years back. Grizzly bears, though, are yeah, kind of kind of at the top. But when I went to, to Churchill, I was just blown away by the polar bears. And I mean, I can't wait to go back. But um, they had me at first sight. Like I was like a little kid in the candy store again. I was like, stop the truck. I mean, this bear was actually in the brush. You could barely see his face. And I probably fired off like 200 images because it was my first polar bear ever, right? You know? So, um, yeah, pretty much all bears, but I would say polar bears and grizzlies are at the top of the list for sure. So mm. charismatic, right? They're just, yeah, it's crazy. Oh, such personalities. They're so intelligent. They're so photogenic. Oh. There's so much biology to learn about them. Yeah. The interactions, the cubs. Mm-hmm. The sows with cubs, the juveniles, the mm-hmm. adult males, the breeding season, you know, the seasonal change, and then the habitat diversity. I mean, really, you mm-hmm. can spend, and people have spent a lifetime and still not done it all. Yeah, right? you betcha. Yeah. Yeah. How about the blue bear? I mean, that's high, that's on my list. I was list. just reading about the that. glacier I, bear? Yeah. I was I, just I, reading about years. that. It's, um, there's a must-read book, and I might have to run and get it to remember, um, or it may come it's to me. Called the, it's called the Blue Bear, isn't it? It is called the Blue Bear, and I was just thinking of the author's name. But it's about, uh, I think it was about Michio Hoshino's pursuit of the glacier or blue bear, which is the color phase of the black bear, for those that mm-hmm. don't know yet that. And it's uh, they're located in very small geographic areas on these islands off the coast of Alaska. And so they're tricky to get to, but a challenge because of that. And that's something I would just love to see it's almost like the spirit bears in a sense right exactly. and we have the, yeah. the cromody uh, white black bear color phase that's off right. the coast of uh, british columbia and this is like that but a blue phase of a black bear a magnificent creature yeah, yeah it actually came across my my news feed canadian geographic had something on that so the that's what issue, intrigued yes. me. yeah i just like wow it was just crazy yeah if you can find the book the blue bear mm-hmm. are you, and it's a must read but okay, it's, cool. It's a, a great story about a man who had a boat and he hired out mm-hmm. off the coast of Alaska to do tours and take people. And it was, I think, believe his time. It's been years since I read it, but something I need to reread. It was very moving yeah, and wow. motivational. Wow. Did you pull it up there, Ron, the author? Yeah, Lynn Schuler. Lynn Schuler. S-C-H-O-O-L-E-R. So I don't know if it's still in print, but if, if you can get your hands on it, any of you out there listening have any interest in bears and, and those amazing ecosystems and the pursuit thereof of a great photographer trying to find them, it's something worth reading. So, Joe, I haven't been to Churchill. Mm-hmm. Twice I've been going, and because of how congested my autumn schedule was, I had to cancel at the last minute. So I haven't had oh. that pleasure. Yeah. And I have numerous friends that have, and it was a life-changing experience. You betcha. So your first time up there, I mean, I totally get it where you said you looked out and took 50 or 60 pictures of the first bear. That was, <laughs> why not? We all do that. We have we have oh. to start with something and then go from there, improve from there, build the portfolio from there, right? What what did you find about Churchill that was the most moving or what, what challenged you in Churchill with the polar bears? Well, if you're going to go, I would highly suggest first getting in the Churchill, taking the train. 
It was it was a sixteen hour train ride out of Thompson in the Churchill, and um, it was just an incredibly fun. You know, you're you're with your friends, you're going in, you're talking, you're chatting, you know, you're doing some editing, uh, that sort of thing. And um, this was overnight, so we didn't get to see too too much, but a, a real fun time if you have the time to do it. Yeah, getting in the Churchill, like we didn't do a tour, we we kind of did the trip on our own, right? So it was just a, a, such a fun time uh, with with the group of guys. You know, they were up there before, so it was uh, very helpful to me, right? Everything, the, the landscape, the the wildlife, the, the monuments like the the Ithaca. Oh, I, I mean, I can go on and on. You know, we, we had uh, cross foxes, red foxes, Arctic foxes, right? You know, we had white ptarmigan, of course, polar bears. We had birds. Like it was, it was crazy. It was northern lights. You know what? I was so tired. I, I just oh, kind of right, looked out that. the window and I'm like, oh, there's the northern lights back to bed. I was just exhausted. But northern lights almost every night. It was crazy. And some of them were out there shooting the northern lights, but I was like, I need to save my energy for the bears. Right? <laughs> so, but yeah, just a beautiful place. Beautiful, really small, small town feel for it for sure. It was just a crazy good experience. How many bears do you think you saw on that trip? If it was a week, do you want to so? know? Do you really well, want? I... To? <laughs> we saw fifty bears in seven days. Seriously? Oh, and, that's way more than I would have guessed. And then there was, and we kind of figured about thirty-six individual bears. Okay, but. Out of the 50, there were some repeats, right? You know, kind of hanging around the bay and stuff. So it was crazy, absolutely crazy. The other real cool thing about Churchill that I wasn't aware of is that the polar bear jail. Oh, yeah. They actually have a jail there, per se, right? For the troubled bears that actually wander to the saloon. To the, the, yeah, (laughs) to, to, (laughs) that uh, travel into the town. And, you know, they just, they relocate these bears and they'll actually spray them. You know, like first offenders is gray, second offenders, they get a red dot and that, so they can keep track of the bears. And what happens is if they keep coming back, they just relocate them further and further away. Right. So, it, you know, really just trying to keep the town site safe, keeping the population intact, I guess. Like, you know, they're very, they're very cool with that. But uh, the first day I was there, I was able to see them airlift a sow and her cubs. And a lot of people miss that, uh, you know, when they're in Churchill, but see them come out, helicopter, put the big nets on, take them up and off they went. And then you just see them go. It was just an incredible experience. Very fortunate to see that, too. Did you take any photos of that? Oh, yeah, I got it all. I can got you it. put a couple of those in our show notes so you people can you. see what that looks like? Yeah. I mean, it bet. is interesting. And I mean, it's great that they do that, too, right? And mm-hmm. relocate them, take them out and... And the bears, I mean, biologically, why they're there, just, I mean, most people are, most listeners probably are aware of this, but those that aren't, they're waiting for the ice to form on this peninsula to go out and seal hunt. They've been waiting for months for this ice to form, right? So your timing as a photographer or a nature enthusiast or anybody wants to see these bears is to try and be there during the couple of weeks leading up to ice formation. And it's a slow process because it's sea ice, right? It doesn't happen overnight like it might on, on freshwater. It takes a little bit of time and it undulates. It's got the surface that but when it does freeze, they're gone. So if That's you plan right. this too late, or if it's, I mean, unlikely nowadays to have an early winter, that's a game changer because they're out hunting. They're, they've been waiting and waiting to go for seals. You're so right. I mean, we had one morning and the ice was, uh, the bay was full of ice. And then when the tide came out again, all the ice is gone. So, you know, yeah, it keeps coming in and out until it finally freezes, right? So, it was like, it was kind of cool thinking, oh, crap, okay, here's all the the ice and they're going to go. And then 
gone. Uh, yeah, our timing was good. Our timing was really good for that. And then I've talked to photographers that have been there uh, years since then, and uh, it, it's hard. It's it's really hard to judge that. You know, some some were really late, two or three weeks late, according to what the norm was, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's 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 tough to time, but uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, because you not only have to time the ice, but you've got to time bears too, because they, they know when it's getting close and that's when they start to congregate. Otherwise, they've got to be looking for food on land. So that's right. it's a guessing game based on each year's different, I imagine. And, and if I recall my biology, um, I think they can actually go without food for six to eight months, I think, too. Yeah, they do come in the church early, and I've got photos of them eating kelp and picking up the, uh, you know, something that was dead. Or I have one that looks like it was eating, a, a, like, a chicken wing. He's got, like, a bone and a, a wing hanging out. So they're just picking up what they can yeah, until they can get it. Yeah, exactly. 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 So, uh, yeah. You know, whales wash up. At times, you know, and they take advantage of that. And I even heard, and I think Lindsay on a podcast that we did with her last summer, who's been a bear guide in all three of these destinations in Canada for black bears, grizzly bears, and polar bears. We talked on that podcast about uh, them getting beluga whales, which I think was rare. But I don't know if the beluga got trapped in the shallows and the bears kind of were able to get it added enough to drive it to shore. Yeah, but feed they on swam, that. swam after the whale and killed it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can see. I mean, the the beluga whales that come into Churchill is it's it's crazy. I have uh, an acquaintance from up there. He's a guide, and uh, the stuff that he was posting, you know, swimming with the belugas and amongst the belugas, and you know, the GoPro underwater to see that it was just, it's incredible. Another incredible experience uh, for for Churchill, right? You know, so a different time of year. Or can you do that you in autumn? Or is it, or is no, it summertime summer. only? It's summer. So, yeah, the beluga yeah. photography is summer. Right? That's right. Yeah. On a, on a zodiac or something. Is that correct? Yeah. Zodiacs, they okay. take them out and stuff. And then that, they, they swim with them. You're in your dry suits and everything. And you're, you're right out there snorkeling with the belugas. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen on social media this fall too, just to promote Churchill a little more. And I was going to fly in just through the time of the train. Now the train's going again, which is great That's for right. that community. So resources are, are getting back up there at a more, I would never say economical price, a more, and not even reasonable. Things are expensive up there for these people, but to fly it in was absurd. So the train is going to help right. again, having that open. But I have seen on social media, some fantastic wolf images up there. And also one of the best moose images I've ever seen of four bulls running with snow flying everywhere was mm-hmm. somewhere in the vicinity of Churchill this year. So th- there's a wealth of wildlife. I mean, the polar bears are the top ticket that everybody you know, yeah. should experience who have that luxury of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But there's, like you said, cross foxes, red foxes, Arctic foxes. Where do you get that? Oh, and that's so. it, right? You're, exactly. It's an incredible landscape up there. You will not be disappointed. You have to be somewhat of a hardy photographer, not necessarily over the top, but, you know, tell people, I mean, the vehicle you're in, in order for your, I mean, everybody knows this, but your camera gear, you need to use it at any given moment. So therefore your vehicle's cold, right? (laughs) I actually did a little YouTube thing about that just last week about keeping the front element cold, right? You have to keep that front element cold if you're going, because if you go from a warm vehicle to an extremely cold environment, that, that glass needs to transition, right? So good chance of getting soft images through that transition. So you're, you're absolutely right. We're in full-on gear and the no heat in the trucks. Or if we had this, the heat on a little bit, windows were open, right? So it was kind of mm-hmm. funny seeing us all bundled up in these vehicles driving, but you, you need to. Yeah, you, you need to. We actually put our cameras outside overnight 
we kept them in like an enclosure, like a porch kind of thing. So they actually stayed at constant temperature for the entire week where we were there. We just brought our batteries in and um, cameras work flawless, like no problem with electronics or anything like that because they stayed at a consistent temperature, right? It's a great hack for our listeners. Yeah, Find a safe place to leave your gear outside as far as yeah. all the functioning camera gear for Churchill. I have two very good friends that did this trip in one of them unfortunately had that bad experience where his lens fogged up and there was i think an interior element so a lot of his trip turned out to have soft images unfortunately so something yeah. to be aware of and and therefore pack the right gear so you can't create those temperatures well we had winds of up to 80 to 100 kilometer an hour some of those days and it actually produced some of my best images so yeah dress for it with that anticipation because i mean you had to find cover you know, you had to find some place to shoot from, whether it was us laying down beside a truck or beside the wheel of the truck just to stabilize the lens because it was so windy. But you get those classic images of the polar bear coming through the snow and, the, you know, the, the wind and in the face and everything else. With that in mind, yeah, you'll come away with uh, those killer images for sure. Wow, sounds like an amazing trip. Trip of a lifetime, they say. Yeah. One I, of those, I right? I can't wait to do it at some point. And I don't, you know, I don't know that it'll be Churchill. There's a couple different areas that I've been looking at, but I'm excited to see those bears and it just experience the the landscape and the habitat that they live in. Well, I did a, a little seminar on, on the polar bears, and I think there's seven or nine actually regions that mm -hmm. polar bears will, you know, inhabit up here. So, or north of here so yeah churchill isn't your only option for sure no i've been actually looking at it and there's an island in russia mm -hmm. and there's a huge population of polar bears that inhabits this island during certain times of the year so nice i have been uh been looking at that one pretty hard because it's a little bit cheaper actually really mm -hmm. oh so we're all talking later <laughs> That's a strong possibility. Yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. Good research there, Ron. That's awesome. Yeah. If there's a poor man's way to do it, I'll find it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we all would, right? That's that was the, yeah. the, the previous Churchill trip too. So you know, you do what you can to get to the places you want, right? So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So tell us a bit. You are a great teacher, and from what I've seen in the field with other photographers that have asked you questions, other people who are trying to learn their gear, you almost always have the right answers. So you're leading workshops. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's something you enjoy doing. You bet. Tell us, tell us a little bit about how you got into that and, and about your workshops. I've always taught photography, uh, not so much like the workshop that I've been doing out, out West, but I guess it really kind of started early on when, you know, I would guide fishing, fly fishing. You know, I would do a lot of that in, in Ontario, right? So I would take people out. So I always had that enthusiasm to to share, you know, teaching how to, whether it's to tie flies to fish or, you know, and that sort of thing. You know, as your, your skill level, confidence grows, that sort of thing, basically when you know your stuff, <laughs> quote unquote, it, it was just kind of a natural fit for me to, to start sharing. And so I started doing my classes, everything from introduction to intermediate to advanced stuff. And with a, a nature photography element to it, and then uh, workshops in the parks, right? Like uh, uh, Waterton, and the, the Rockies, that sort of thing. And I just love teaching. I love seeing the enthusiasm on, on people's faces, you know, when they walk away with those images, especially getting their camera set up, teaching them just the, the real basics to, to get them moving in the right direction. So essentially, 
teaching them to create an image, make an image as opposed to take an image. So much fun. So much fun. I actually get repeat clientele every year. They always just want to keep coming back, have fun with it, learn a little more, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's um, really looking forward to 2019. So do you teach post as well, uh, or is it is it yep. any kind of nature photography in the field? Are you doing landscapes, macro, wildlife, opportunistically? How does it work? You betcha. So with my workshops, two-day, three-day, there's all those three components, actually. You know, but we'll have a classroom session. So I always include about an hour, hour and a half classroom session before we go out so that, to get everybody up to speed on camera settings. And then, you know, one afternoon, midday, you know, light may not be so good. We'll do a macro workshop. So again, another hour classroom, and then we do some macro work. And then, you know, for the sunrise sunsets, um, depending on the time everybody shows up for the, the workshop, we'll do um, a classroom portion for that too. As good as the classroom stuff is, I really emphasize like grabbing my attention in the field so I can teach you hands-on. I very rarely get to shoot on my workshops, and that's because I spend so much time with each individual, and I make sure everybody's okay, and if they have questions, and you know, teach them, you know, to get proper focus or whatever it is, so they can walk away with those images. Right? It's such a riot. Like I just. Have you ever those. had a bear? Have you ever had a bear on your workshop with people? Many bears. You've had I many mean, bears. Oh so yeah. That's, that's cool because then you you get to talk about animal behavior too, and and how to handle the situation. Right. And that's a huge component. We actually talk about safety and, and mm -hmm. ethics and stuff right away. And ethics, not so much wildlife photography, but landscape and nature in general. There's a lot, lot to learn. So when we come across the bears that, you know, we teach them what to do, what not to do. Uh, we teach them a little bit about behavior, what to look for. There, there have been times where we've had five minutes with a bear, notice some sort of behavior. And it's like, OK, everybody, we got to go. You know, we're stressing the bear. We're pushing the bear. We're interrupting their natural movements or their behavior. And they're all like kind of looking at me. And it's like, well, I'll explain to you later. Like, we, we need to go, right? Sure. You know, it's not so much with, with bears, too. It's with, you know, foxes and everything else. You know, you come up on the den site and stuff and teach them distance. Like, yeah, it, it's it's pretty much with anything. So that's that's a huge part uh, of the learning for me, too. It's not just so much how to take a picture, but, uh, uh, you know, respecting nature in general, like the wildlife and, and, and uh, the landscape. So people become interested in this. It's important for that to be taught. For sure. You betcha. Absolutely. It's it's such a, I, I just, I can't wait to do more. How many people are in your average workshop? Is it a number well, of people? What's your preferred number? Let's put it five. that way. Five. My preferred okay. number is five because I, I do the workshops myself. I was doing eight at one time and I just found I didn't have enough time with each individual, right? Okay. And so workshops that would include more than five, you know, I may bring somebody along. Like I may have a second uh, photographer with me if we're going to go any bigger. But with five, it's perfect. It's usually two vehicles. So less of a footprint. You know what I mean? We're not, we don't have a, you know, a big eight or 10 cars, you know, following you all around and stuff. And then again, going on through the landscape and trails and stuff, you know, it's a lot less people. And I mean, they get a lot out of it, right? A lot of one-on-one, -on -one, which is important for me in the workshops. So just to conclude, how many of those do you like to run a year? Uh, well, this coming uh, year, I've already got, um, one, two, three, four, I probably have six, uh, seven so far, and, and and there's more coming. I'm doing some with uh, the Waterton Park, so like, uh, so it's not mine per se, but it's with a wildlife and the wildflower festival that they hold every year. So I'm I'm the photographer for that, and then I have a there's a big Kappa conference, uh, Canadian Association of Photographers. That's being held here in Calgary, and I'm doing a three-day workshop for them in, in Waterton. 
And then, yeah, just a lot of my own personal stuff too. So this year is going to, it's just, it's going to be every year. I seem to be adding one or two more. It's, it's good. I just, I just love it. So. And do you have somewhere that, well, we'll obviously link in the show notes, but where would people go to learn about, is it just on your website? Yeah. Website, Instagram, Facebook. I post a lot on social media, always something on my, on my website though, under my workshop page. So I'll have like workshops and then I'll have that, like the teaching seminar, that stuff. So, uh, cause I do, uh, talks, uh, around Calgary for the camera store and other things. So, so like um, a lecture in a, in a, a lecture, room, yeah. room somewhere. That's right. It'd be like a three-hour lecture, and uh, and you know every day, every year, I usually do one on on landscape photography, macro, and wildlife photography. So I usually have about three talks um, like that, and then I, I also do one-day trips out of Calgary to Kananaskis or or that sort of thing, and uh, that's where I'll take more because uh, it's just a one day. Everybody meets at a certain spot, and then it's a lot easier to manage. We all carpool and that sort of thing, right? But uh, yeah, a lot of fun. You do landscape wildlife and uh, i guess mark already asked it the the wildlife is more opportunistic or do you go specific times for specific behaviors and species um that's right yeah so i i target certain times a year like so my workshops like per se like my spring workshop in waterton is basically a bears workshop right and then my fall workshop in waterton in september will be for the elk rut the summer one is is kind of a, a little bit of everything you know because we've got bears we've got elk we got foxes we got deer we've got moose we've got you know so the summer is a little bit more opportunistic like you suggested but it's um and landscape stuff too right wildflowers everything going on at, at that time right so uh, but yeah i do try and target specific times of year for what's going on for sure well that landscape around waterton is so rugged and the rockies are so tall there it can create some epic landscapes for light Oh, and I mean, basically, you know, point any point your camera anywhere and you're going to, like you said, find something epic. It's just gorgeous there. Beautiful area. Awesome. Windy, though. I've been there a couple of times. It can be windy. It's like this giant funnel going through there. Am I wrong or am I right? Oh, um, we've had to cancel some night shoots or some morning shoots, landscape shoots, because it was so windy. You couldn't even you couldn't stabilize the, the, the tripod. It was impossible. That happens more often than not. So we do something else. There's always something in the bag as far as learning goes. So if that's not going to happen, we go back to the, the lodge and then we'll do another teaching component. So there's always something to learn. Yeah, that's Mother Nature, right? So very windy that's where you learn the slow exposure stuff for the landscape for the for that you know the white caps you got and you you're you're doing a five minute exposure to try and smooth things out no they learn a lot yeah absolutely you just you make the the best of it with the conditions you get right yeah it's pretty cool so what's in joe's future if you could go and pursue any species or destination and i'm not necessarily looking for a specific pocket mm-hmm. of a place but what's on your bucket list of, of subjects to photograph or experiences to have again doesn't have to be a specific place but a species in a habitat or what's on your list if if you were going to pick a, something to do this year or next year what's what's mm-hmm. the future have in store aside from these great workshops that you're offering what's the spirit I mean, I, bear. bears and bears oh spirit bear. okay spirit bears that's one thing i have not seen yet um and it's definitely on my my list I'd really like to get up to um, to Alaska to see the brown bears per se, right? You know, cool. yeah, the coastal brown bears. So that would kind of encompass what I would think are the five bears of Canada or North America per se. You know what I mean? So yeah, those are kind of the the two on on my list. Maybe it'll happen this year. Hopefully, one will. You know, but uh, 
I, I, I would say those those two right now for Canada, right? You know, for for the North here to travel anywhere in the world. That's well, the list is long, but I I'd, <laughs> I'd definitely like to go to Africa. Um, I've got friends yeah. that have been there, and again, predators, <laughs> the lions, the big cats, you know, or the what that's, is it? That, the the top five, five or the big five, yeah. it's called. Yeah, you bet. So I have a friend of mine, Trish, that went down there and. She had an amazing time. I had another friend too, Carrie. She went down there for a month. And oh my God, trip of a lifetime. I mean, the wildlife was just incredible. Well, if you're going to go, I mean, I, if it'd be lucky for most people's schedules to fit a month in. But if you could, it would make sense. At least a couple of weeks, right? If not. Oh, and that's it. I mean, I, honestly, I, I couldn't do it for anything less than maybe two weeks. A, a week, I would just be getting started in my eye. Yeah, you know, like an, I would just, so that would definitely be something to plan out and, and spend that amount of time out there for sure. I mean, yeah. But I, I think that's, you know, probably looking at something like that for now anyways, right? You're going to notice too, like uh, we're planning a, um, a workshop um, beginning of the July for 10 days for Costa Rica. So I haven't really done the big announcement yet, but we're just finalizing that too. So uh, that's one place I'm pretty excited to go, to go and see, go into the jungle. It'll that be is an incredibly biodiverse country. It, uh, you've been, Ron? No, I haven't. I have a couple friends that have been down there, and then I've got a, a guy that we met on social media, and we just message back and forth and talk all the time. And just to see the diversity of his portfolio and see the yeah. diversity of what's available down there. It's just unbelievable. Oh, you, you could shoot 10 just for birds. Yeah, exactly. Just birds and, alone. Yeah. It's it's incredible. So uh, the gentleman, Cyril Brass, the, the, the one I've been uh, working with, he's been down there like 15 times, mm-hmm. just the, the, the photograph and, and everything else. So um, pretty excited, pretty excited to launch it and, and see what, uh, what comes of that. So that'll be some pretty huge changes for me this year as far as adding to the portfolio of images, right? So... Certainly. Very cool. Something to look yeah. forward to. Yeah, you betcha. So you've been you've been at this a long time, Joe, and something that we've we've talked about in the past. Mark's the highlight of Mark's career is that one day when he finally got to photograph a moose. <laughs> <laughs> and what a what? day it was! What a day! I don't know where to start. Thanks, Ron. What? I always love the highlight. <laughs> what's your What's your highlight wildlife experience? My high, oh geez, Mark. As you know, Northern Ontario is um, there's so many moose there. So I've actually grown up. Moose were actually an issue, especially driving north. Okay, between Sault Ste. Marie and Thunder Bay, the, it was it was a, a danger, right? Because you don't have anything to light up the highway at, at nighttime, right? There, there's none of this kind of stuff, right? So it was very dangerous. And I grew up with black bears. Um, I think the highlight of my photography career was seeing my first grizzly bear out here, mm-hmm. losing my crop and being hooked ever since. And not to take away from black bears and moose and, and all that kind of stuff in northern Ontario, but I think what really got me was my first grizzly bear, right? And just a really cool story. Uh, my mom came to visit last year before she came out. She, she's not a photographer. She's learning. I actually got her a camera for Christmas. So she's pretty stoked, uh, pretty much on the phone with me every day. What does this do? What does that do? How do I do this? <laughs> so it's been pretty fun. But um, she she had the same enthusiasm. I got her into a grizzly bear last year uh, when she came out in the spring. And um, she just lost her mind. And that's what it's all about, right? Getting people to say, and that was her first. So yeah, I think it was the, the same for me. You know, that that's first grizz. And uh, 
now she's hooked. Her camera shoots 10 frames per second. It's got like goes out to 600 and all this kind of. So now she said she's ready for bears when she comes out in the spring. So <laughs> it's awesome. It's so awesome, right? So that's uh, great. Yeah, I would say Grizzlies. Yeah, the first Grizz. So I think that's what sealed the deal for me out here. Fantastic. I just found a box of old i8 video cassettes. Oh, geez. And I found my first wolf sighting on that I got that I got video of and it's it's right by your country so I'm trying to figure out a way to digitize that I just ordered this little kind of dongle oh, wow. that I can hook the camera up to so I'm excited to see that or get that footage on digital and throw it up it's it's terrible but it, I mean I was literally probably the same way you were feeling with the grizzly bear but I was literally almost high-fiving myself I did a little jig to this lake in uh yeah. in the Canadian Rockies and because there was nobody else with me. So I had to celebrate. Oh, I mean, that's what it's all about. Like it's, there's so many of those moments. Like you just reminded mm -hmm. me of the boxes of slides I have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like sure. something I should pull out on the light table on the loop and start looking at again. Cause you know, that's kind of where it all started, right? Shooting the Velvia or the 64, like just that back in the day. Actually. Yeah. That's something I'm going to do in the next, next few weeks is remember. Cause it's all about the memories, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. like, there's, there's so many of those decisive moments that you just, you can run right. You can run through it again. I mean, the images are great, but uh, you can still, you can still feel and smell and, and just all those senses come back. Awesome. If I've missed anything, Joe, anything about the camera gear that you want to say anything more about or um, your work? Um, yeah, well, actually, one one thing, uh, one last thing you had said, you'd mentioned maybe about um, my go-to gear for 2019, okay. what I'm looking forward to, right? And Lumix is actually coming out with full frame. So they've been known as the micro four thirds leader, I guess, for, for that, those systems. And they've actually announced that Photokina that they've come out with the, uh, the S one, which is a 24 megabyte full frame and, uh, or megapixel and an S one R 47 megapixel camera. So with an L mount, they're going to have their own line. It's going to fit the Leica and then Sigma's coming on board to uh, create lenses. And then by about 2020, we're going to, pretty much have the full gamut as far as the long telephotos and everything else. So they've come to, uh, to the game with full frame now. So, um, pretty Matching impressive. Up with the Sony's and the Fujifilm as far as those sensors on that platform. You betcha. And the specs are just crazy good. So I'm, uh, going to get that into my hands soon. I hope. <laughs> I was kind of surprised to hear that with, and I guess, you know, to have the full system, mm -hmm. but Fujifilm and, Pentax Lumix have kind of owned the micro four thirds market. And that's the advantage is you get more reach out of your lenses, that kind of thing. As far as a wildlife photographer goes, I was kind of surprised to see him go full frame. And I suppose it's more for the, the landscape studio minded person. You betcha. That wants that full frame effect. Well, exactly. Like the 47, you know, uh, megapixel camera. I mean, that's going to be an amazing studio camera whether oh, it's yeah. portraits or commercial or anything else or landscape photography, you know, absolutely. Right. It was cool to hear come November. I got to see it, got to hold the prototype and uh, anxious to try it out. But again, micro four thirds, you know, you got to kind of remember where we're going with the smaller, lighter systems, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. Now, if you're looking at that, the S1, S1R, you're pretty much back to what a full size DSLR is. 
right? Okay, and the quality of glass. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. But the, one of the big draws to me was instead of carrying 30 pounds on my back, I'm carrying 15 or 12. Mm-hmm. Or I'm taking a walk, I'm going for a hike, and I'm not so much taking a big wildlife lens, but I can throw in my pocket two landscape lenses and and a macro lens, and I'm not even, it's like having an apple. Like, there's no way to it, right? So you got to kind of weigh the pros and cons as to, you know, what you're going to do, of course, with any system, what what you're going to do with um, that camera system, right? So for me, the micro four-thirds, like, it's not going to go away. It's just Lumix is is coming out to compete with the full-frame market. And even there, there's so many choices. I mean, it would be fun to line up and do a rundown between the new Nikons and the Sonys and and these. You bet. Yeah, like I heard. Charles talk about the, the Canon, you know, mirrorless yeah. and everything Canon else, right? So, and his change are probably going to go that way, you know, um, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, it's these cameras are a game changer. You know, I just ran off a few of the specs and, and stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, I mean, these things can launch a rocket. Just the technology that's built into it, it's just incredible. Well, what's kind of funny about this, too, is I, I tell my um, clients and participants and stuff, too, like, just remember as much as I love Lumix photography, still photography, you know, you still have to learn to see there's, there's light. Yeah. There's technique. And realistically, I'm still just shooting in either aperture or manual, <laughs> right? I, I autofocus like continuous, you know, IS is on, uh, using exposure club. You're still using the basics of photography, right? So uh, I try to let them know like the best camera is the one they have. Right. So don't get too, over the top with this gear. Gear is great. Gear is awesome. I'm kind of a, a techie guy, right? I love gear, but at the same time, you can still create amazing images with with what you have, right? So uh, I try to uh, reiterate that with everybody. Keep that in mind that, you know, there's about five or six good settings for any camera and you can capture those images, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, it's not all about That's the gear. Sure. It's just exciting times because they're all kind of stepping up to the podium with these comparable new products that are opening yeah. doors and they're all doing it almost simultaneously. So, you know, I, I think it's valuable for our listeners to hear from different pro photographers who are using these different systems as to what aspect of it drew them in. Because I myself am intrigued. I mean, I, I really like my D850. I'm yeah. happy with that. But I always want to be aware of what the potentials are. And it leads me back to a question I have, something you mentioned earlier about the mechanical shutter versus Mm -hmm. the electronic shutter. People are going to laugh when they hear me bring this up again. But (laughs) when you look at the electronic shutter, I still don't have the experience, but my mind stuck on it is what you see is what you get. Now, that is one of the most intriguing aspects of these new mirrorless cameras for me. If you're using the mechanical shutter, does that mean that's not functional that way and you're looking more through a traditional viewfinder? And no. Okay, it's, so please it's, explain it's, that. Yeah, it's still electronic viewfinder. The thing with this Lumix G9 is it's got 120 um, frames, per, like, uh, frames per um, second, like frame rate, right? So there's there's no blackout, okay? So it is what you see is what you get, whether you're using the mechanical shutter or electronic shutter. Okay, so simply a sound then you get to hear, then you know that you're functioning. That's right, so you know you're functioning, yeah. Like I said earlier, I couldn't function without it. It was freaky. I'm sure I'll get used to it, but uh, it's just one of those things. Um, In some situations, in some very wild, shy, skittish situations, mm -hmm. you want that. I mean, it would be beneficial to have no noise. There'd be some animals that even the click of a, even a false click to trick ourselves that we're taking a picture, let us know we're taking a picture, could be enough to get the animal's attention and affect its behavior and make it leave. 
Absolutely. So in some situations, it's, it's certainly an advantage to have that capability that, you know, traditional oh, DSLRs do not. I mean, they have a 100%. quiet mode, but really, I can. it's not nothing silent. And also turning it back on, because, I mean, I've mentioned this in other videos, that uh, the noise will actually get, you know, the animal's attention. Like I was photographing this moose, and her when she heard the shutter, her ears perked up and faced me. So, you know, those kind of things for a more aesthetic image, right? We weren't uh, too close. We weren't bothering. But again, it helps like that. But like you said too, like that, the quiet shutter, 100%. I mean, I've seen guys that had like, it almost looked like a little jacket. It's a sound deadening thing that they put over the DSLR to quiet the, the shutter. So yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, going on silent mode, nothing would ever know you were there, right? Photographing right. from a blind or in camo or something. Sure. And those, in those situations, that's a bonus. You betcha. Awesome. Well, thank you for shining light on the Lumix camera system for us today, because it's a first for Wild and Exposed to hear about that and the success that you're having with it, and also sharing some of your personal stories and adventures from Churchill and your workshops in Waterton National Park in beautiful Alberta, Canada. <laughs> I well, thank you, that. Joe, for being well, our guest today. Oh, man, I really appreciate you guys uh, having me on. I'm, I was honored to be asked, so thanks again. It's been Thank fun. You. I look forward to another meet and greet, either yeah. on the podcast or in the field somewhere on yeah. some adventure. Yeah, no, looking forward to it, guys. You bet. Likewise. Well, thank you, Joe. In closing, I want to thank our talented and hardworking producer, Missy, for all that she does to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. I would also like to take a moment and to ask that no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, to make sure to click on the follow or subscribe icon it's free and give us a positive review, a five-star rating or a thumbs up as those allow us to do what we'd love to do and to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. You can see more of our team's content on Instagram, Facebook, and on our YouTube channel, Wild and Exposed Podcast, and on our website at wildandexposed.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.